Lindsay Barra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Gurus editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. This is part two of our conversation with Doug Chadwick, Director of Mental Skills Development for the Colorado Rockies in Major League Baseball. Doug played football at the United States Military Academy at West Point and served 24 years total in the U.S. Army. Between two combat tours in Iraq, Doug earned two master's degrees and a PhD, and while studying at Cal State Fullerton, was mentored by sports psychology guru Ken Revisa, who was the first to introduce mental skills training to Major League Baseball. Doug also served as the director of West Point's Center for Enhanced Performance, where he helped develop an army-wide program to improve mental skills and soldier performance in combat. Now with the Rockies, Doug uses that same training to help baseball players perform better under pressure. So you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but as a person who had two grandfathers who were combat veterans in World War II, both of whom were wounded in battle, I don't always love using war as an analogy for sports because the stakes are just not the same in sports. And I sometimes feel it belittles the service of our veterans. That may be just my own personal hangup. But I do also believe that one of the reasons that my grandpa Yogi was one of the best clutch hitters in baseball history was because he realized that getting up at the bat at the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded, regardless of what he did, no one was going to die. And he had been in an experience where people would die based on his actions. So I think he was able to come back and sort of put things into perspective. And it was one of the things that made him such a great athlete. So I guess my big question is, as a veteran, as someone who works in sports, what are those crossover lessons that can be taken from war into sports, even though they're not quite the same? Yeah, right, I'm going to I'm going to preempt this response with this is my response. I can't speak for all veterans, but I was given the opportunity to learn some of these things on the front end as an athlete and then apply some of those skills in a combat environment and then come back and teach some of those things. But like what your grandfather, what Yogi was able to do was experience that kind of in the midst of his career and then go on to have this really incredibly long and successful professional career because he had a ton of perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll come back to that in a second. What I'd like to say is that people respond to stress in a pretty universal way. We have that fight or flight or freeze response that is physiological and it's regulated by the part of the brain that's not the really complex part of the brain. Really, the lizard brain of our brainstem that kind of shortcuts that response. So when something is really, really meaningful to you, we're having that human response to it. So when you're under pressure, you're not thinking, you know, is this life and death necessarily? Or at least I wasn't. It was performing under pressure. And you perform under pressure when you know how to self-regulate. So I think that that was the piece where I brought in my sport experience and the combat experience was how do I manage myself under these very stressful conditions? So I think it's a pretty universal response. Obviously, the stakes are different and people can have a really overreaction to a situation where, you know, their life is on the line. And that's, I think, the biggest difference is the stakes. But understanding how to manage yourself under pressure is fairly universal. 
And it's a biochemical, neurochemical response with adrenaline and norepinephrine and those things that, you know, really influence that human response. So understanding how to manage that is really the key. That brings it together for me. Certainly, you know, making those comparisons doesn't bother me at all. Because what I tell the players is, yes, it's not life and death, but this is your livelihood. And for many of them, it's the most important thing that they're doing. And so I don't want to belittle that. Uh, I'll lose credibility if I do, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And But I believe it. I believe that they're just as dedicated to being a great athlete as a soldier is to being a great soldier. So what is your day-to-day job like with the Rockies? How do you go about teaching these guys to manage their response to pressure? Being around is a big part of it. So I'm on the road a lot. And uh, we were able to add another person, another great practitioner this year that will help us get deeper with the different uh, players at different levels because we have several hundred. Most people don't realize that you don't just have your 40-man roster players. You've got layers and layers and layers and even more layers down in Latin America and the Dominican. You've got another 100 or so players. So being able to get deeper with them requires being around and and getting to know them on a deep level. So that all takes work. So I'm at camps. I'm at, I go from usually big league camp starts before my other camp. I'm not sure what we'll end up (laughs) this year. Uh, So from the beginning of big league camp to the end of minor league camp, I'm out in Arizona. I'm with them every day. I'm having conversations either individually out on the field with them. We're giving presentations out on the field as they're working through drills. And we're doing that in a more, I guess, traditional setting, doing that in the theaters as well, the group type meetings where we're establishing foundations. And that's mostly done at the lower levels to help give them some foundations, even though they might be abstract to them. Uh, What I mean by that is they've always been good. That's how you get to be a professional baseball player. So they don't know what it's like necessarily to have to battle uh, in general. You know, we've got quite a few who've had to battle to get to that level. But uh, teaching them to understand and filter you know, failure is, is foundational stuff. We've got to teach that early on. And then the work as we move up becomes more individual. So we're meeting individually in confidential settings and when they're comfortable with it in public settings. Uh, It's really become that when we talk about that stigma, really become interesting to me that, you know, thinking about the way Kendra Vizza talked about how he had to do the work or the way that, uh, you know, the coaches in the front office insisted he do certain, you know, be in rooms and not talk to, you know, people in public, players being willing to come up to you in the middle of the hallway and just have a really good conversation about something they're, they're trying to get better at. And that to me is a is great feedback that the stigma is being reduced. What are the biggest challenges that MLB players or baseball players coming up through the system come to you to talk about? I think that kind of I alluded to is that dealing with failure, which they may have never had to do, the grind, that it's no longer, you know, 40, 50 games. It's 140 to 162. So dealing with that day-to-day, helping them develop a process to get themselves ready to play 
every day is really a, a, an integral part because that brings in a lot of these different conversations. Like when do you transition from being you as a civilian, <laughs> as somebody off the field to coming to be ready as a professional athlete? So that integrates, are you getting good sleep? Are you working through nutrition? How dedicated are you to maintenance, to strength and conditioning work? to the imagery and the thought management to, you know, when do you turn off the phone and, and having some of those really specific, not abstract conversations about what time are you doing all these things to get yourself ready to perform. And so that's bringing a lot of the conversations together. And then how are you filtering throughout a game? You have an at-bat that you're not satisfied with, you chase and you, you know, you end up punching out. How do you release that, come back, be a great defender, and then get ready for your next step at? And then the end of the day, the coming out, how do you transition and capture and make sure you're developing, you're continually developing your self-awareness and then transition back into, you know, I need to call my girlfriend. I need to talk to dad, you know, those things that are real uh, as part of their lifestyle. So I work with uh, Tom House, the famous pitching coach a lot. And one of his favorite things to say is that the best athletes fail forward fast, meaning that they don't hang on their mistakes. They don't beat themselves up for doing it. They pretty quickly assess why it happened so they can learn from it and have it not happen the second time. It's a lot easier said than done. So how do you teach people to do that? Because that's a skill that anybody who gives a crappy presentation or gets a bad grade on a paper, anybody can use that skill. Great point. I think part of that is the filtering, you know, going from one thing to the next. So whether that's a presentation, a surgery, if you're a doctor, you know, something that outside of the, the sport context, you know, working through a case as an attorney, those different things is, you know, you've got to be where your feet are. You've got to be in the moment. And it is a process. And that's where we're talking about leading up to the process. When does a game start? It doesn't start, you know, at first pitch. It starts hours before first pitch. And how do you get yourself consistently ready to be ready for the game? And then throughout the game, how are you using some of those skills? And it's not just thought type of skills. It's attaching purpose and meaning to some of the things you would do anyway. So this is, you know, let me try to bring this to life a little bit. For a, <laughs> for a baseball player, it's, you know, when do you get ready for the at-bat? And what do you have to do to get ready for an at-bat? Well, you got to put your batting gloves on. You got to go grab your stick. You got to put your helmet on. Those are things you got to do anyway, but don't do them until you're ready to lock in, you know? So, you know, back to a physician, back to a surgeon, you know, you got to put your gloves on before you meet your next patient. Don't put your gloves on until you're ready to meet your next patient, you know? So attach some meaning and have a process to, to channel those thoughts into the next thing so that you can be where your feet are in that at bat or on that next pitch when you get on the hill. You can't pitch if you're not on the rubber. Don't get on the rubber until you're ready to focus uh -huh. on the next pitch. I think baseball is also pretty unique because it is a team sport, but you just, you're talking about a guy going up for an at bat, a pitcher towing the rubber. That is something you do very much alone. 
So there's a lot of these unique individual pressures that take place inside the team sport of baseball because there's no one for you to, you know, pass the ball to on the left wing. You know, if it's like a military analogy, nobody's watching your six, you're out there by yourself. Yeah. So that I would think would be for a mental skills person, a kind of a, a unique thing to deal with both the team environment and the individual pressures of being a baseball player. Agreed. And there's so much time to think. <laughs> yes, it does take a long time, four and a half hours. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I know the game's working on that part, but that's part of the issue. I think we have a couple of unique things about baseball, that being one of them. It takes a long time to play the game. And, you know, if you're not a pitcher or a catcher on defense, you know, when is the next ball going to find you? Well, the next ball is going to find you when you're not ready. <laughs> Yeah. Often that happens. And that's what great players realize is that they they have to get to the next pitch, even when they're on on defense, because the ball is going to find them. It is, you know, a bit of an individual game in a team sport. So I think having those different skills available are necessary. So the other part about baseball in the bigger picture is we get more time on the front end to, to help them develop those skills. We get years of development. Even our first round pick is going to get several years at the minor league level to get himself ready to perform in front of 50,000 people and then you know millions of people on TV. That doesn't happen the day they get drafted. Other sports, that does happen. Yeah, it can. <laughs> and so I think that that lends itself to being able to help them develop this work. Not that those other sports don't have performance practitioners, but I think it helps us. And, you know, the urgency is not necessarily you know, time-based. It's, you know, allowing them to develop some of those skills through practice. So getting up to bat or going on the field in front of 50,000 people and then knowing that there's another million watching on TV, how do you teach players to, you know, quiet the noise, I guess, not listen to the 50,000 screaming voices and listen to only their own voice and make sure that voice is telling them the right things? That's great. Great question. I think that pre at bat routine or the pre pitch routine is helping you to narrow your thoughts. And it takes practice to get into the box deliberately or get onto the rubber deliberately. And then having some fixed thoughts like attack the glove or smooth as fast if you're in the box, you know, some consistent thought that you go to that helps to channel because if you're thinking those things deliberately and i often use the breath as an example because the breath is our regulator mm -hmm. that's the way to tap into that fight or flight rest and digest system the, the autonomic nervous system that is regulated you know influenced by your environment can be regulated through the breath and so we do a lot of breath work and it's funny you know you talked about all that education i have and then i end up talking about breathing half the time <laughs> But the breath is a regulator. That's the piece of the autonomic nervous system we can tap into very deliberately, and that helps to regulate things. So with those fixed thoughts in mind that you have to practice, both in you know rote sort of work in the cage or in BP or throwing a bullpen, but also under pressure, you have to practice them for them to be there when you want it the most. But, you know, as, the, as an example, you know, with the breath, you can just say to yourself, breathe in, breathe out, or you can introduce a count to it. But the thing about that is we only get one conscious thought. 
and the rest of it kind of lies into our you know, goes into our subconscious. Uh, both of them can influence that response. But if your one conscious thought is deliberate and it's helping you self-regulate, your one conscious thought isn't the 50,000 people. It isn't mm-hmm. the stakes of that particular pitch. It's on something that you're comfortable with. And you know that you've worked on, so you have something to go to under those pressure-filled conditions. It is amazing that the breathing thing, how it can even just, even just one conscious in and out, like I see it just in a a very basic way, because I wear a heart rate monitor a lot when I work out, but how just one conscious in and out can drop your heart rate so significantly. It's incredible. Yeah. I think that, that we're finally getting to the point where the wearable technology and the, the biofeedback really helps, you know, especially with this generation of athlete, helps them see that. It helps mm-hmm. them understand that it's, this isn't, you know, some sort of uh, magic. <laughs> you know, this, isn't, <laughs> this isn't something we've made up. Your thoughts really can influence your physiology. So we, they, we don't just tell them that. We get to show them that. And, you know, so through some of these wearable tech and they're getting there, they're not, there's nothing perfect. And a lot of them, you know, they can't necessarily perform with some of the vests and things are helping with that. Uh, but, or it's all sort of getting there, but being able to show them that this influences that, and it's not just made up and the breath is really the big one where we can tap into that system that would otherwise be controlled by a very primitive part of your brain, you can bring that into, okay, this is more executive thinking. I'm controlling the way I respond under these conditions. Ken used to say, you can't always control the things that are happening to you, but you always get to control your response to it. And that's being able to control your response, part of it. One thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, we all have this crazy internal dialogue with ourselves and we individually are probably the most important person we talk to all day long, the little voice in our head. And it's hard for athletes, especially the young ones who strike out or, you know, they walk someone with the bases loaded to not fall into that pattern of negative self talk. You stink. You don't deserve to be here. What are you doing? You're so dumb, whatever it is. How do you teach people just to be kinder to themselves? Right. It takes practice. (laughs) It takes awareness first that you're doing that to yourself, but that's a pretty human response. And the reason it's human, I use the evolutionary side of this is because if we were completely optimistic all the time as early humans, like, oh, there's a fuzzy bear over there. Let me go give it a hug. We wouldn't be here today, you know? So we were constantly on the lookout for threats. And so that's how our brains developed. And that's how pretty much every creature's brain is developed is that you're looking out for threats. And so now your threats aren't, you know, the bear or the saber-toothed tiger. It's, you know, that I might look stupid in front of 50,000 people. So we have that sort of primitive response to just about everything. When negative things happen to us, we think about them a lot, we ruminate. But then I go back to, well, why do you do that now? And, you know, sort of jokingly, I give them, you know, I can read your mind and I can tell you why you do that. And they're like, what, how? You know, we just started talking and it's like, well, the reason is you give a shit. You know, this matters to you. And that's why you're going there because you want to be better. 
So that response is, is understandable and natural, but how the you are when you're at your best. When you're at your best, you're not hypercritical. You're not overthinking. The brain is pretty quiet and you're focused on doing what you do best. So how do we get back to that mindset more consistently? And it takes practice. You have to train the mind to identify, all right, I'm spinning here. Be aware of it. Step off the rubber. You know, get yourself collected. Get a breath. Use the breath. Use those different thoughts that are there available to you rather than go into that out of control, negative thinking spiral that people tend to do. I imagine that this is, you know, I feel like your brain is sort of like a muscle, like everything else. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. That the way you feel when everything's going well, some people call it the, the flow state or you're in the zone or whatever. When you're sort of like, sitting on your couch, you can meditate yourself into that flow state and then use that when things are spinning out of control. But how long does that really take for people to be able to recognize, okay, I'm out of control. I know what I need to do to bring myself back. I mean, you can tell a guy that in a hallway that he needs to do this, but in reality, how effective is it? Like, how long does it take to get good at? Yeah. 10,000 hours. 10,000. <laughs> Start now. I'm starting right now. I'm setting the clock. Okay. No, I mean, that's, that's a, a reference to... You know, yeah, I know. To be an expert. <laughs> but no, it depends. <laughs> that's my answer. It depends. It really, you know, people have different personalities and you've met people who are, you know, sort of remember the SNL skit on Debbie Downer, um, <laughs> you know, who are always going to look at the critical side of things. And then you have people who are eternally optimistic, you know, so you've got personality and that goes back into genetics and you know, experiences throughout childhood, all these things that play into developing, you know, the way you frame things. So it does depend. It does depend on the individual. But the way I put it is if you have somebody who's really, really consistently negative and hard on him or herself, that that person isn't going to become necessarily the eternal optimist, but they can get better. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point is that, you know, using some of the techniques like mindfulness and and meditation and thought management work. And now I think we have some different tools for that, you know, whereas it was us creating scripts for people about self-talk and helping guide them through some of those meditations and some of that stuff to bring them out of that thought process or help them become more accepting of the way they think without the severe emotional response. Now there's all these tools like at the touch of your finger, you know, you have all these different apps on your phones that have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of different mindfulness-based scripts or relaxation, progressive relaxation, meditations, even, you know, I use things to help me go to sleep because when I, when things get quiet, that's when my mind decides, you know, decides, okay, now I'm going to think about everything. Uh, <laughs> and so I use them to help me go to sleep and help to focus the mind on that. And I think that really is helpful. And then you can progress That's why I look at like imagery and visualization as a more advanced skill, because if your mind is consistently spinning, as soon as you close your eyes or as soon as you get into a quiet place, it takes a lot of work at identifying that, 
having some tools to calm that down and accept it and then work your mind into something very deliberate, work your thoughts into something that's much more deliberate. That's so interesting. I feel like baseball too, you know, it's a sport that's played outside and it's played every day. It's not once a week like football. So it can be so unpredictable. Day games, night games, rain, hot, cold, wind, flight delays, bad food, the mound's too steep, the mound's too flat, the outfield is shaped weird, the fans are mean, that guy has an air horn. I mean, there's like so many things that can go on for forever. So how do you, I mean, I know the be where your feet are and, and, you know, you're, you're supposed to be a little bit more internally focused, but how do you teach athletes to just let go of the things they really can't control? I think having the process really helps, you know, regardless of where you're playing, you've got a way of getting yourself ready. And now I think with Google Maps and with, you know, understanding the different, you know, even at the big league level, you know, playing at the trop where you get all those different, you know, field conditions that can come into play, but having familiarity with it, you know, what, you know, might call a reconnaissance, you know, you can get on Google Maps, you can talk to people about, Hey, have you played at this place before? What's it like? How's the fan base? You know, cause sometimes, and we saw this in 2020 playing in front of no fans. Is yeah. Tough. You know, and, and not having, you know, being able to hear the people in the other dugout talk, that's a tough experience. And so that's not uncommon at the at the minor league level. So having them be prepared for what they're going to experience and then have their process ready to go. You know, you get ready at a certain time, you eat your peanut butter and jelly sandwich at a certain time and you dive into that process. And it really is kind of shocking how tied in the big league players will be to the process. I don't, it's hard for me to break into that routine because they are so locked into it. It's what gets them ready. You know, they, they roll out on the foam rollers at a certain time. They go into the cage at a certain time. They get into the hot tub at a certain time. They certainly don't have hot tubs at every minor league. (laughs) But, you know, they're doing things on purpose. And that's the whole point is that you create a, a process that fits for you. And for some guys, it's just screwing around for a couple of hours until they need to get ready right before a game. That's, an, I think, a little unusual, but it's there that some mm-hmm. guys do not need to be locked in. If they were locked in for the hours before their game, by the time they would be exhausted by game time because they had used up all their adrenaline, you know? Yeah. So it's it's an individual thing, but having them lean into those things they can control. What about for the days... 162 games is a lot. You're not going to be totally gung-ho to play all 162 of them. So what advice do you give guys about getting after it on days when they just may not feel like it? Yeah. And I think some of that is understanding what that feels like, you know, Mm -hmm. if you get to the ballpark. So that's part of the awareness piece is that you got to be aware of, okay, this I'm dragging today and then have some things ready to go to help on those days, you know? So whether that's, you know, more music or you get to the ballpark and, you know, you need to take a cold shower, some things that just kind of help ignite the energy level a little bit more. And so it's being able to adjust that arousal level, that readiness and adjust, you know, adjust on the back end, being able to calm yourself down. But on the front end, how do you get yourself energized, focused and ready? uh, And what kind of tools do you have to do that? You mentioned before sleep and 
Do you guys have their nutrition dialed in? How closely do you work with those performance people with the Rockies to kind of make sure that the nutrition and the sleep are working with the mental health and mental skills piece of things? Yeah, I think part of that is getting to know them. Um, you know, having a relationship with our nutritionist, uh, and we have one of the best and having a relationship with our performance, physical performance personnel. And I think we have great ones in that regard as well. So it's important for me to understand that if they're talking about, you know, stress management, which our physical performance personnel do, and they talk about sleep management, which both are our nutritionist and our physical performance personnel and myself are all talking about that. If we're not on the same page, it's going to be confusing to them. You know, so we're complementary in our work uh, to the extent that we can be. But if we're on different pages, that's a real problem. And often those folks, at least the physical performance folks and the trainers, you know, the trainers, we can't leave them out of the conversation either. Probably nobody is more intimate because they're, they're they're touching the, the guys, they're with them for hours, they're traveling with them every day. All those relationships can be even tighter than those of us who are bouncing around to different affiliates. So we've got to be tied into them. We've got to have a relationship with them. And it's a bilateral relationship, us talking to them about what they're seeing every day, you know, so that they can communicate to us, hey, this guy's not saying anything to you, but he needs to talk to you. And when someone is not saying anything to you and needs to talk to you, do you seek them out? The door goes both ways? Yeah, I will, for sure. We will. You know, and you can't do that if you don't have a relationship with the player. You know, and so when we draft a player and know that there might be something there, I can't just jump into that thing without getting some face time and getting him to trust. And trust is going to be the foundational part of that relationship. So if they don't know us, it's tough. It's tough. Mm -hmm. And so at the lower levels, they typically don't know us as well. It's up to us to help them develop that trust, develop the relationship, believe that we know what we're talking about and that we can help. One last thing before I let you go, Doug, you know, everybody, any profession, even just parents, anybody can benefit from making themselves a better functioning person through the development of mental skills and and better being able to focus and shut out the noise and, you know, on and on. What kind of advice do you give for people who have never dabbled in this kind of stuff, who want to just take the steps to improving their their mental skills? Where do they start and how do they embark on that journey? Mm, That's a tough one. I think, you know, you you could get on social media and get a really interesting uh, <laughs> don't don't do that <laughs> yeah of people who claim to be experts in this world you know i wouldn't even claim to be necessarily an expert i'm confident in what i know but there are boundaries to what i know and well often you know I, I hope i'm informative and so if you're feeling like there's a real problem then usually access through the medical community and the mental health is the place to start. You know, if you're feeling stressed out, I mean, it's part, again, it's part of the continuum, you know, there are certain tools and it could be just utilizing one of those apps to help with the, the stress management piece. But the performance piece, I think, is, is becoming more and more mainstream. You're seeing... Uh, executive coaching and life coaching and some of those things that are more 
performance oriented become more part of the mainstream, part of the, the, you know, just part of what you do and work. So look for those resources within the scope of your job. And then for those of us who are practicing on the performance side, I'll give a plug to our credential, which is the CMPC. That's a certified mental performance consultant. And that's a credential through the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, requiring an extensive amount of graduate education, at least a master's degree, and practicum, hours of supervised practicum, and standardized tests, and other things that I think set us apart from somebody who's not practicing or who's practicing as you know, a motivational speaker or somebody who doesn't have graduate education in a psychology-based field. So those are the kinds of credentials I would look for. Clinical licensure is state-based and it's, there's, there are legal requirements to the boundaries of that work. I think you know, somebody who has state-based licensure has a high-quality standard of vetting. And so those are professionals that I would endorse. People on the performance-based side, I would endorse the CNBC. So you can look for those online and be specific about who you're getting to. And, and even within the clinical spectrum, you've got you know, somebody that might have a family-based issue. So you have marriage and family therapists or licensed clinical social workers, people who are you know, more oriented on, on the family dynamic than somebody you know, who's just seeking individual counseling. But I I think the big takeaway is that if you're struggling with something, whether it's clinical or performance, there is help if you want to seek it. Yeah. And, you know, again, even if you're not struggling, you know, you you just want to be better. There are people who are practicing on that end who are highly trained for high performing individuals who just want to actualize, who just want to reach their potential or come closer to reaching their potential. Maybe reaching your potential is difficult because if you wanted to be the best baseball player ever, you'd have to give up a whole lot of other things, you know? So it's a a matter of trying to, trying to create some, I don't know, balance is the word, but trying to create some great form of yourself with all those other things. You just made me want to ask you another question with the team. When you are doing the, the mental skills stuff, is there any sort of quantifiable way for you guys to know whether or not it's working or is it just based on the guy saying, man, I feel so much more confident and comfortable at the plate and, and I feel like I'm a rock star? Yes. There's the answer to all of that is yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There are ways of getting feedback and some of that, you know, more of an empirical way. Quantifiable is, is probably a stretch, but that's what Oregon industrial psych people do. They work with these psychometric inventories and they help create things that are more specific, these instruments that are more specific to each sport or each activity. So yeah, that's, you know, you can create some empiricism in a numerical way to look at that, but I don't trust in only that. You have to get qualitative feedback as well. And so if somebody says they're feeling a certain way, then that you have to trust that they're giving you candid feedback. I don't know why they wouldn't, you know, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I feel great, but you can tell they don't, but that does happen. So it takes all of that. And there are ways of identifying those things with these different tools, some of them quantitative, some of these qualitative, but not one or the other. And I work heavily on the humanistic qualitative side of things, 
But I recognize there's value in those tools. And it's one of the things that we're working on enhancing our capabilities right now. All right. Well, Doug, I feel like I could ask you 7,000 questions and we could be here for four hours, but we don't have time for that. I really appreciate you being here so much. This is all so interesting to me. And uh, I hope that the uh, MLB lockout gets straightened out and, and you get back to work really soon. Thank you very much, Lizzie. It's been a pleasure. You know, I really appreciate getting to know you as well. And uh, wish you the best with the work you're doing with Mustard and hopefully continue the conversation. Thanks so much, Doug. All right. Take care. Thanks so much to Doug for joining us on Food of the Gods. To keep up with Doug and the Colorado Rockies as we head into the 2022 Major League Baseball season, follow the team on Instagram and Twitter at, at Rockies. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production. Podcast.